Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, where we'll continue our study, looking at the uh, narrative of the events surrounding Christ's birth, events that we're reminded are uh, events that fulfilled God's Word. While you're finding your place in Luke chapter 1, let me say a few words by way of introduction. Let me begin with a question. Are you blessed? Sometimes when I greet a friend and I ask how this person is doing, this is true of many friends, that person will respond, I am blessed. And usually, their response is an acknowledgement that life is not as bad as it could be. It's a tacit acknowledgement to the fact that they do have challenges, they do have trials, but relatively speaking, there are many who have greater struggles and greater challenges and they indeed have much to be thankful for. And so they say, I am blessed. And it is true. Everything that we have is a gift from the Lord. Even those things which God uses in our lives to discipline us, to refine us, to shape us by means of hardship into the image of Christ, these things are blessings. But this morning, as we look to the text before us, I want to look more closely as, at what it means for us to truly be blessed. What is true blessedness? And what I want to argue this morning from this text is that true blessedness is found in Christ through faith. And I want you to see how it is that such a life of faith in Christ is truly blessed. So if you found your place in Luke chapter 1, beginning in in fact in verse 39... Would you follow along with me as I read to verse 56? In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would cause us to rejoice in the blessedness that you have granted us through Christ. 
for any who are here among us who have not yet experienced this blessedness. We pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts, that they might receive that blessedness that comes alone through your Son, through faith in him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I began with a question about what true blessedness is. But I must continue with a distinction. And here I'm going to break a rule that nearly every professor I've ever had has said not to violate, although they always give qualifications. And so here I give one of those qualifications. The rule I'm going to break is I'm going to talk a little bit about Greek because I simply can't see any way, behind, uh, any way else to explain to you what's going on in this text with this word, blessed. You see, there are two words, in fact, that stand behind the word blessed. And we see them both in this text. And they communicate related ideas, but they communicate slightly different nuances of the idea. The first, in verse 42, is the word in Greek is eulageo, which, if you hear that sound, our word eulogy comes from that word. It's the idea of speaking well wishes, speaking good words upon a person. And in the context of Scripture, when we see someone speaking this way and blessing a person, there is an idea that the word has power. That is, if God is the one who stands behind it blessing the person, then God is imparting a blessing. It is an active blessing. And so this is the kind of thing that you see, for example, when Isaac blesses his son Jacob. When Jacob blesses his sons in Genesis 49 and pronounces a blessing upon them, he is speaking to them in a way where he imparts the promises that he has received, the blessings that he has been promised to his sons. And it implies certain attitudes. It implies certain things. It implies about Jacob, for instance, that he is incorporating his sons in the plan of God and the saving work of God. Throughout Luke, we see this word more frequently in Luke than any other book in the New Testament. It's important for Luke. And every person who blesses in this way is someone who is trusting the Lord. They're blessing God or they're blessing others. So we see Elizabeth blesses. We see Zechariah blesses. One can bless people. One can bless the Lord, as Zechariah will do in texts that we are to come to. One can bless a thing, as Jesus blesses bread that he's about to break and multiply, or as he blesses bread uh, before his disciples after his resurrection. This is the idea of communicating a blessing to somebody. The other word, blessed, which we see in verse 45 and we see again in verse 48, is a statement about someone's state of being. And the word there is makarios. It's the, kind, the word that we encounter in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you can, uh, I would encourage you to do this if you are in the habit of listening to sermons throughout the week. You can go back in our audio archives to May of 2021, and you can find many, many sermons that unfold the idea of blessing from the Beatitudes preached by our brother Greg. And I would encourage you to do that. In fact, I've thought through some of those sermons to help me think through how to articulate that idea of blessedness. That it is a, it is a statement of the 
privilege, and I'm paraphrasing something from one of those sermons that I remind you of, a privilege that we've received of God's grace. And it's a statement about what someone is like at that moment, that a person is blessed. Not that I'm imparting a blessing to somebody, but I'm characterizing that person as being in a state of blessedness. And that's what we see in verse 45, what Elizabeth says about Mary. We can look back into the Old Testament and see this kind of language frequently. You can turn or you can listen, but I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy 33. And you're going to see a sense of this word here in Deuteronomy 33, verse 9. The translators translate this word as happy, which conveys a sense, an aspect of this word, but not all of it. But that same word, that idea of being blessed. And there in verse, uh, in chapter 33, in fact, it's verse 29. I have lost it. I apologize. I wrote the the word wrong, but let me quote it then for you. No, I found it. I'm sorry. I was in 32. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you. Or you might say, blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. And here what Moses is saying about Israel is he blesses them. In that sense of pronouncing a blessing is that they are blessed because the Lord has intervened in their life to save them. Because of what God has done to deliver them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. They are indeed blessed. And you will see that flower in a person's life when they recognize that blessedness, when they experience that blessedness in joy, when their life is marked by joy. That's why I say happiness conveys a part of it, but not all of it, because joy goes beyond happiness. It's not just being smiley. No, it's true rejoicing. And in this passage before us, then, we're going to see pictures of blessedness in three individuals, in John, in Elizabeth, and in Mary. And they're going to show us what that blessed life looks like. And more importantly, they're going to show us where that blessedness is found. So as we look to the text then, we see first in John, and in his response to the Christ, a picture of blessedness. You note in the text that Mary arises, and if you remember from last week, the passage that we uh, read together and that you heard preached, that Mary had just received a promise from God delivered to her by the angel Gabriel. And he told her in the course of that promise that her cousin, Mary, or her cousin Elizabeth was with child in her old age, a miraculous work of the Lord. And the angel presented this, this to her as a sign, a proof that all things are possible with God, that God will indeed fulfill His word to Mary. And so we're told by Luke, In those days Mary arose and she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she greeted her cousin. She greeted Elizabeth. Now this is a bit strange. Luke doesn't tell us what prompted her. We don't have a record of God telling her to go. It was a long journey of some 70 miles, and it would have been an abnormal journey. In fact, it's unlikely that a woman of her age, unmarried, would have taken this journey without a chaperone. Remember, Mary was probably somewhere between 13 and 15 years of age at this time. We're not told if anyone or who goes with her. 
We're simply told that she goes in haste, urgently, to go and see her cousin Elizabeth. And she arrives in her town, and she goes into her house, and she greets her. And this is a normal practice. That is, even though she is the guest, Elizabeth is her elder. Elizabeth is the wife of a priest. In that society, Elizabeth was her superior. And so by greeting her, she was showing respect, and she was showing deference. What we're going to see in Elizabeth is that she turns the tables. She is the one who humbles herself and shows respect and deference, but not before we see it first in the response of her child, of the child in her womb. For what happens, Luke tells us, is that when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now this word is the word that translators of the Greek translation of the Old Testament long, long ago, even before the time of Christ, this is the word they chose to translate what Jacob and Esau were doing in the womb, that they stirred, that they were fighting. There was a jealousy that was already prefigured in the womb, a conflict that was already foreshadowed in the activity of the womb. And yet, Luke uses this word in a different sense, in a different context. I suspect to portray a sense of irony because John does not stir or leap out of jealousy. He leaps out of joy, we're told. And Elizabeth interprets that action because the Spirit fills her so that she may interpret it rightly. Many of you women know what it's like to have a child stir in your womb. And you know what it's like to have a particularly sharp stirring. It's a cause of excitement, a cause of joy. But you probably don't, well, you might suspect, oh, the child is hungry or the child is doing this or that. But we don't really know what the child is doing. But remember what Gabriel told Zechariah concerning John, that he would be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And here we see the Spirit causing John to leap and causing his mother to interpret that leaping, that stirring, as an act of joy, as an act of rejoicing. And what it does is it prefigures the way John thought about himself and about his ministry. It wasn't about John. It was about the one to whom he pointed. But you can see and imagine how difficult that is, how hard that would be for someone who had attracted a great following. You can turn over with me to John chapter 3, and we'll see how this plays out, not at the beginning of his life when he's in the womb, but near the end of his ministry. We pick up in John 3 and verse 25, and we read these words, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here, John shows the right attitude of a person who truly is blessed. Because what John does when he responds to his disciples who say, essentially, 
John, you're the baptizer. You're the Baptist. Look, he's baptizing and you're losing your audience. He doesn't say, I'm jealous. He doesn't say, let's win him back with a great show. He says, I'm like a man at a wedding who's just part of the, one of the groomsmen. This is about someone else, the one who has the bride, and the bride is going to him. That is, the people of faith are going to him. So I rejoice, because my role is only to point them to him. And I've accomplished that mission. And so he says, I rejoice, and this joy of mine is what? It's complete. Is that it's full. From beginning from the womb to the end of his ministry, John was one who was blessed because he found joy by rejoicing in another. He rejoiced in the Christ. In our own lives, how difficult it is to live in this way. I'm reminded even from the early church, the church at Corinth, how they were given to partisanship, how they ordered themselves, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, saying, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos. In other words, according to their favorite teacher, their favorite apostle, their favorite preacher. And my preacher, my teacher is better than yours. And by attaching themselves to these men, they were essentially saying, I'm greater than you. And that continued for many, many years. In fact, many years later, maybe about 30 years later, a pastor in the church of Rome wrote them another letter and told them, go and get that letter from Paul because you're doing the same thing, that same spirit of rivalry is in you. Many need to be reminded of what Paul said also to the Philippians. Do nothing from rivalry or empty conceit. And how do we do that? How do we change our frame of mind so that we're not so rooted in our own interests that we think it's all about us? And if anyone who comes, who we're tempted to compare ourselves to, where we, we, we give in to a spirit of contention and we want to pull them down and exalt ourselves, how do we avoid that? Like John, we rejoice in our Savior. This week, I heard a man ask a, a great Christian teacher, he was asked, how do you stay humble? And his response, it's hard not to be humble when you stand beside the cross. When you consider the fact that the Son of God, the one who made you, came and gave his life for you. He died because that's how great our sin is. That's how significant it is that we are sinners. The Son of God had to give his life for us. How can we not humble ourselves before him in worship? How can we not rejoice in his presence? That's the attitude that we see in John, and it is an attitude of blessedness from the womb to his tomb. John was blessed because he rejoiced in his Savior. We see it in Elizabeth, too. For she also rejoices in the presence of her Lord. She reverses the order of things. As I mentioned, Mary greets her as a sign of deference. But hear then what Elizabeth says after she's again filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking because the Lord speaks through her. She exclaims with a loud cry, it is with a joyful cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Elizabeth humbles herself in the presence of Mary, but not because there's anything in Mary that makes Mary so great. Well, there is one thing in her, literally. One person in her, literally. He's the one who is great, and so she says, the mother of my Lord, he is the one who is her Lord and Mary's Lord. And in his presence, she rejoices, humbling herself and wondering, what privilege is this? Not only did God miraculously give her a child in her old age, one who would be great before the Lord, one who would go before the Christ and who would prepare the people to receive the Lord, but she brought the Lord into her presence and she rejoices with humility. She pronounces the blessing on Mary. She pronounces the blessing on her Lord because she recognizes, indeed, that she is the servant and Jesus is her Lord. And so she rejoices and is a picture of the humility that leads to true blessedness, the joy that comes through humbling ourselves before our Lord so that He might lift us up. And so we see a picture of blessedness in John. We see a picture of blessedness in Mary. And we see, excuse me, in Elizabeth. And we see a picture of blessedness in Mary. As she goes on to say, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is part of why it was so important that I drew these distinctions between the blessing that we see in 42 and the blessedness that is spoken of in verse 45. Because if we confuse these things, we might wrongly assume that something innate to Mary makes her blessed. That it's something about Mary in particular that is unique to Mary, that can't be shared by any, that makes her blessed. Turn with me forward to Luke 11. We'll look forward in the narrative and see that Jesus actually cautions against this uh, conclusion. There in Luke 11, verse 27, Jesus is in the midst of teaching the people, and a woman rises up in the crowd and exclaims with a loud voice in response to his teaching and his wisdom, with these words, she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. She is, what she's doing is she's thinking that the explanation for why this man is endowed with such great wisdom must be that he had such a great mother. But Jesus needs this lady and those around him to understand that she's got it all reversed. And so he responds, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, blessed are those who respond to the word of God in faith. For true and real faith demonstrates itself in hearing the word and keeping the word. Keeping the word by repentance, keeping the word by believing it, keeping the word by obeying it. All of these things usher forth from a heart that is truly believing, a heart of faith. And Jesus needs the people hearing him, to understand that the blessedness, the true blessedness that one most needs does not come from a familial relationship to a person. It doesn't come from being connected to the right people. But it comes through a relationship that, anyone, that is available to all. 
a relationship that comes by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It's not restricted to Mary. It's available to all. All you must do is trust in the Lord. You must believe that Christ gave his life for you and that God raised him from the grave and put your hope in him and him alone. And you will be saved and you will be blessed. That's what we're called to do. And this of itself is not a work that we do, but a gracious gift that God gives us so that we might indeed believe that Christ, who God sent, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life for our sakes, gave His life on the cross for our sake that we might be redeemed. We're called to believe that. And that's the faith that leads to blessedness. That's the faith that Mary has. Even if she does not fully understand yet how it will be uh, understood, how it will play out. For Elizabeth, again in the Spirit, says she is blessed. She, the one who believed that there would be a fulfillment. That is that the Lord is faithful and will do all that He has promised. Indeed, she is blessed. And so may you be as well. And so as we look then to Mary, we see the expression of that blessedness in this song that she sings. In the joy that comes from her mouth as she proclaims the glory of her Lord. This morning we heard read the words of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The words that she sang when God gave her, who was barren, a child who would be Samuel, who would be devoted to the Lord, miraculously. And she praised the Lord in many of the same words. And we heard in our call to worship words from Psalm 34 about magnifying and exalting the Lord. And we heard from Isaiah 61 words that sound like what we've read here. In fact, what this is, is a, it's like a patchwork quilt, a stitchwork of Scripture. Mary's mind is chock full of Scripture. It's filled with the words so that when she prays, the words that come out are biblical words, are the words that have been prayed by the saints for years and years before. Words from the Psalms, words from Isaiah, words from Genesis, Deuteronomy, and 1 Samuel. Her mind is steeped in Scripture and she prays accordingly. And the words that come out are beautiful and they're glorious in the way that they exalt the Lord. There's a parallelism that we need to recognize in them. There's a poetic pattern, that is, where one line mirrors another. It helps to explain what is said in the first line. So you see, for example, my soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says, that, I, that I'm shining the spotlight, as it were. I'm calling attention to the Lord. But notice how she does it in that second line. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She magnifies the Lord by rejoicing in God as the one who saves her, as the one who is her salvation. And indeed, He has saved her. How has He done it? She goes on, For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. He has looked favorably on her, is the idea that He's looked on her with a gracious attention seeing that she is in a humble position 
that she's a lowly person on the social ladder of her day. She's very near the bottom. And yet the Lord has looked down to the bottom of that ladder and looked favorably and graciously on her and made her gracious and glorious promises and she's just overwhelmed because, as she says, I'm a servant. As Elizabeth acknowledged when she referred to Jesus as her Lord, so too Mary acknowledges as she refers to herself as a slave, as the bondservant of the Lord. And yet this is the character of our gracious God. He delights. He delights to show grace to us, to those who are humble. For it's written, He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we're going to see how He opposes the proud in this glorious hymn of praise. But here let's dwell on the fact that He gives grace to the humble. These are not just beautiful words, they are true words. The Lord really gives grace to those who are humble. And Mary indeed is that. She looks again at the greatness of the Lord and calls Him the one who is mighty, the one who has done great things for me, the one who is holy, for she says holy is His name. Not only is He mighty, not only is He strong, He's high and set apart. It's all the more amazing that He condescends to show grace to this humble woman, considering that she is a sinner, as we all are. And yet the Holy God, the God who is righteous, the God who is just, the God to whom even angels cannot gaze into His face, for He is so holy, has shown grace to this woman, and He's shown grace to us. He's condescended to save us. This is blessedness. For this God who is so far above us, who is so transcendent, would condescend to save us. And she rejoices, rightly so, in the way that God has done this for her. For He is merciful, as she declares, and His mercy is for those who fear Him, for those who trust in the Lord with all their heart, for those who seek the Lord, for those who live by faith. God is merciful. From generation to generation, that is, this is not just once, it's not just on sporadic occasions, but in every generation, God shows Himself merciful to those who fear Him. And here Mary doesn't just look upward in her gaze, but she looks outward from herself and incorporates others in her hymn. That is, how God, through her, is bringing a work of salvation, a work of mercy, a work of grace, a work of steadfast love to all who fear His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. She uses the language that is used to describe the Exodus. He has shown strength with His arm. The Lord has bared His holy arm, we read in Isaiah. And the Lord has shown His arm, we read in Exodus 15, in the song that the people of Israel sang after God had destroyed the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea. And she uses that language to describe those saving events, to speak of what God has done in giving her a child, one who will be a king, one who will reign forever and ever, one who will reign on the throne of his father David, as Gabriel said to her. And we do look forward to that day. But one who would first save his people, would save his people by enduring the punishment that they deserved. 
And she brings these things together. You see that the punishment that fell on the Egyptians in the Red Sea was an example of the Lord showing His holy arm, the Lord bearing His arm. And the example here of the Lord bearing His arm is in the conception of a child who would bear that punishment for our sakes. Whether Mary fully comprehends all of those overtones, I don't know. But I know that this is God's Word and that the Spirit of God knows all things. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Now in Luke, as the Gospel of Luke unfolds, we're going to see that it's when He speaks of those who are poor and those who are mighty, there is very frequently the connotation of those who trust, who proudly trust in their strength or their possessions. It's not just people who have wealth, but people who make the wealth their trust, people who make their might their trust. And the Lord says of them, they are proud, I will scatter their thoughts. I will scatter them in the thoughts of their heart. I will confuse them. As David says in Psalm 18, to the crooked, he makes himself tortuous. You see? These are the people who trust in their own strength and in their own wealth. And what does the Lord do? He takes it all away. He makes it as nothing. For He alone is the one who is mighty. And their strength is nothing. And when He does it, He does it by lifting up and exalting those who are humble, those who are lowly, by giving good things to those who are in need. And so that's what happened in Mary's life. That's what the Lord did in her life. That's what the Lord did for Elizabeth. That's what the Lord has done for us. A people who are needy because we need His grace. People who don't amount to much, let's be honest, in the world. We don't worship in Washington, D.C. or Lansing. We don't stand near to the halls of government. We're just here in a tiny town and a tiny church. And yet the Lord delights to look with favor and grace upon people who are humble. He lifts up those of humble estate. and He fills the hungry with good things. And again, she turns her gaze even further outward to all of God's people, to her nation Israel, for she realizes that in her experience, the Lord is not just doing a thing for her, but He has helped another servant, his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy. That is not as if God forgot and now he suddenly remembers to be merciful. No, that God in his providence, in his perfect plan, remembered his mercy exactly when he chose to. When God remembers, it's not as if a thought comes into his mind that he forgot. It's when you forget your, where you put your keys. He remembers in an active way. That is, when he remembers, he acts. When he loves, he acts. He shows his love. He shows his remembrance to us. And he has shown it here in the sending of a son to help his servant Israel, all in accordance with the things that he spoke by the prophets, the things that he said 
to their fathers, to our fathers. We can look back all the way to Genesis 12. And we see there the promise that she recognizes in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. What God said to Abraham there when he called him out of his homeland and sent him to a new place. He said in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then again in Genesis 22 after God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac and then at the last moment intervened to stop him when he had tested and seen his faith. Then he affirmed his promise to him. And there he says in verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And indeed, Mary says that what God has done is the fulfillment of that promise. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And now he has brought about the conception of that offspring, of that child that he promised long ago to Abraham. The one through whom blessing would go to the nations. And that is what we must see about the blessedness of Mary. Her blessedness and our blessedness and the blessedness of the nations does not come because of something intrinsically in ourselves. We have nothing that we can bring before the Lord by which we can somehow earn His favor. The only way to be blessed before the Lord is to come to Him through Christ, the one through whom He makes His blessings flow. You see, that's the blessedness that Mary had, not simply because she had a baby in her womb, but because she had faith in the Lord who did it in accordance with His promises. That's what we must remember and take from this passage today as we go forth. We must remember that true blessedness is found through faith in Christ alone. And here, to make that point in conclusion, I want you to consider two examples. One example is of misery. The misery of those who seek themselves. The misery of those whose hope is in this life alone. The misery of those who seek salvation in any other thing but Christ. Think about the great athletes of our day who boast in their strength and boast in their feats. I give it five years at most, and they won't be the greatest athletes of the day. And they will, I guarantee you, many of them, be miserable in it. And even the ones who are recognized right now as the great ones, they're miserable too because they can always find someone who says another is greater or another was greater, because they look to themselves alone to find satisfaction. And there's no joy. 
What about those who hope in this life? Those who hope in their wealth and those who hope in their strength? The politicians of our day, do they look joyful to you? They are miserable, and if they're happy, it lasts for two or four years, and then they're miserable again because their power is gone in a moment because they put their hope in this life only. Look at those who seek their salvation by all the rituals they do, all the works they perform, and they find again and again they can never do enough. You think of Martin Luther in history, how before he understood that we are justified by faith alone, he was miserable because he couldn't confess his sins long enough and fast enough to keep up with everyone. But he found joy when he put his faith in the finished work of Christ alone. And the great ones of this earth will find joy when they put their Trust in the one who is mighty in him alone. And the ones who seek themselves will only find joy when they humble themselves and seek the one through whom blessing comes and him alone. So the simple question before us today, whether you are only grappling with these things for the first time, or whether you have been in Christ for many years, and anywhere in between, is simply this. Are you trusting? Are you blessed as one who believes? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you pronounce blessings upon your people. And indeed, we bless your name. We thank you for the blessedness that you give us, the kind that is rooted in eternity, but the kind that has already spilled over into the here and now, one that we will fully experience when our Lord comes again, but one that we experience even now in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial, as we are enabled to find joy in this life. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we exalt you and we magnify your name for you are the only one who is worthy of our praise. Put upon our lips, O Lord, as we go from this place words as we've heard read, as we've heard from your holy word, words as we've heard from your servant Mary, words as we heard from Hannah earlier that praise you in the words that you've given us in your holy word. We pray all of this, O oh Lord, in your precious holy name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.